This is 1 John chapter 3. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us, the word of the Lord. Heck yeah, you guys can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Oh man, let's try that one more time. You got an extra hour of sleep last night. Good morning. Hey, it's, uh, it's really fun to see some of you that I've never seen in the nine before. Welcome. This is what it looks like. Uh, great to have you apart. Uh, man, you guys should get an extra hour of sleep every Sunday uh, with the way that we were singing. That was great. Uh, one of my favorite things to do with you guys is, uh, is sing when you can almost sense in the room that we really do believe the words that we're singing. You know, it's one of my favorite things that we get to do together as a church. Hey, listen, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, this is a safe place for you. It really is. I get it. Like, you've probably been hurt by the church and by other, other Christians in the past, and we would love to walk with you. We'd love to answer any questions that, that you have. So thanks for being with us today. Um, w- w- someone just gave me a, um, they had the sense that the Lord was speaking to them while we were singing, and it was very simple, but I think it's very profound, and I, I want to say it to you. Um, they just had the sense that God was saying, I am leading you, you follow. I'm leading, you follow. So I think that's, that's a word for us as a church. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church, and he's leading us, and our job is just to follow him where he goes. And I want to say how encouraged I am by watching this reality happen in some of your lives that you, you've lately been, uh, even e- th- there have been needs that have come out about young kids that need to be adopted. And um, I, I, like literally over a text message, r- families responding, oh, we'll adopt that kid. Oh, we'll adopt that kid. Like, just we'll bring him into our family. So there's something profound happening where uh, it's almost like the gospel's really taking root and all that Jesus has done in rescuing us is starting to be felt and it's changing the way that we live and, and interact and it's changing the culture of our church. So just really grateful for that, grateful to God, grateful that he's the pastor, he's the one that's leading us. So, uh, man, excited about jumping into 1 John. Can I pray for us? And then we're gonna, we're gonna get after it this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for just the the good news that we've just got done singing about. This is a story of you chasing us down. This is a story of you rescuing us. We have contributed nothing but sin and brokenness and shame, and you have contributed your own life. You have pursued us. You have sought us. And it's just amazing that we can stand here as people that have been loved by God the one that we used to hate, the one that we used to ignore. We are loved by God. So we rest in all that you are. We rest in all that you're doing. You are the senior pastor of this church. You are leading us, and we want to follow you. So come, Holy Spirit, work in power, move in power. Use the word today to change hearts, and that's something that you have to do. We can't do it. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible, grab it. And 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Don't stress if you don't have a Bible. Uh, I've got mine. We'll have the words up on the screen as well. So 1 John chapter 3. About nine years ago, uh, I used to travel around the Midwest with a group of artists and musicians and, uh, and preach at different colleges or universities, different uh, venues, different coffee shops, 
different things like that. And basically the, the musicians would get up and they would play their little thing and do their little deal and try to, you know, sell whatever album it was that they were, they were selling. And then I would get up and I would preach. And it was always really small. It wasn't as maybe romantic as that sounds. It was, you know, a couple hundred people at max usually. So uh, in one, one particular instance, this was the very first, I think, actual time that I was traveling with this group. And uh, there was a couple hundred people at this college that gathered in a really small room. It was packed. There was a lot of energy. And the artists were playing their music. Then I got up and I preached. And man, let me tell you, I got up and I preached. Like I opened up the word and I, I, I remember thinking midway through, this is what preaching is right here. This is it. Like I was just slaying it. I was giving my, pouring my guts out. Um, and, and I was like, man, that, that, that was right there. I just did that. Uh, and then after I was done preaching, I, I stood off to the side, and um, this college girl, she made a beeline for me, and I thought, man, here it comes. Like, she's going to tell me how great that was. And so I was bracing myself, you know, stay humble, stay humble. Uh, don't, don't get egotistical right now. This is the Lord's work, right? And I remember just kind of coaching myself, and, and she had this big smile on her face, and she said, man, I just want you to know the whole time you were preaching, I couldn't listen to a word you said, because you were very nervously spinning your wedding ring like this. It was stressing me out. It bothered me so bad. I literally heard no words that you said. Next time you do that, you should not spin your wedding ring if you actually want people to listen. And then she just walked off. I was like, man, that's not what I thought was going to happen. I was really excited about the potential compliment, and I left just like, pop, you know, she just, you know, rained on my parade and popped my balloon. Um, and, and, and that experience right there, kind of feeling like I'm about to get encouraged, and then all of a sudden you leave deflated, that's like reading First John, right? That's this book. Some of you are like, man, this book is a, a book about assurance, John is explicit, if you want to be encouraged and assured that you really are a Christian, then I've got good news for you. I'm going to assure you, I'm going to provide assurance. In fact, uh, over ten times in the book, he uses this phrase, by this we shall know. And so you're thinking the whole time, I, I get to know what, what, it, what it is to really be a Christian. I get to know that I finally uh, belong to God. I really am one of his kids. In fact, even in the passage that Sean just read a minute ago, 1 John 3.19, it says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And so when you crack open this book, you're like, this is going to be great. I I'm bracing myself for the encouragement and the assurance that's going to flood into my soul. And then after you read the book, you go, man, not only am I probably not a Christian, but I think I'm also a child of the devil. And I don't know what happened there. Like, listen to some of the things that John has been saying. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says, I'm in the light, and yet hates his brother, is still in darkness. No one, he says, born of God, makes a practice of sinning. No one, born of God, makes a practice of sinning. And then in chapter 317, he says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees a person in need, yet closes his heart against that person, how does God's love possibly abide in them? And I don't know if you've had this experience, but you're reading this book and you're going, man, these are hard truths to swallow. 
And I think they're hard truths to swallow because they've been really hard truths to preach. And you kind of brace yourself for the, for the encouragement that's going to come, but instead of leaving this book feeling encouraged, often what happens to Christians like you and I is we leave this feeling incredibly deflated and confused. And here's the question, am I really even a Christian? If I'm wrestling with what John is saying, am I really even a Christian? There's a, ga- there's, a, there's a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, um, a, a pastor. He says this. He says, to be sure, John has developed his argument concerning the basis for Christian assurance in a masterly way. But as a pastor, he knows that in spite of all that he's said, there will still be some who feel condemned in their own eyes and who are therefore depressed by this and lack assurance. This self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition, Some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. It might be a question of health. How a person feels inevitably affects how he thinks. It may be due to a specific sin. It might be due to circumstances, but whatever the cause, the problem is a real one and is quite widespread. This is a widespread problem. Am I really a Christian? I don't feel very assured right now after reading some of the things in this book. So here's the big question. How do we go from feeling condemned to feeling assured? How do you make that transition from feeling the condemnation of your own heart to feeling assurance and receiving assurance from God? That's what John's going to talk with us about today. How do you actually take your condemning heart and transfer over and actually receive the assurance from God. So before John does this, what he's going to do is he's going to fully, before he gives us the medicine, he's going to diagnose the problem. So that's what he's going to do in chapter 3, 19, and 20. So here's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see the reality of a condemning heart. The reality of a condemning heart. Look at 1 John 3, 19, and 20. It says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, just stop right there. For whenever our heart condemns us. Uh, if, if you knew how much the person sitting next to you talked to themselves, you would probably think they're crazy. You would think that until you started to realize how often you talk to yourself throughout the day. Because here's the reality. Every one of us has this internal dialogue, this internal debate that happens as we go about our day every day. You have one voice, and it says, here's how you live. Here are the decisions that you should make. And it's just helping you guide your way through life. But there's this other voice that's essentially this running commentary on all the decisions that you're making, on every circumstance, on every situation. And that running commentary is often not very polite. It's not very sympathetic. Often that running commentary kind of drives you into the ground a little bit. Let let me illustrate it like this. Uh, Have you ever met maybe a a new person that you really admired or someone that you've respected? Or, uh, Or maybe you're in a job interview and and you're interacting with this person, and, and you really want this person to like you. And at one point in the conversation, you have this thought, like, man, this would be a really witty thing to say. And you say it, and as soon as you say it, it doesn't play like, like you thought it would play. And, and you thought, man, that, that, like, didn't come out the way I meant it to come out. And all of a sudden, the voice comes, hey, you idiot, what are you doing? Why would you say that? Now you look weird, and this person is thinking that you're really strange. You've wanted to get this person's respect and admiration, but now they think you're weird. And so then you're like, no, I I got this. That was just one moment. So you try to recover. Like, no, it's it's good. Like, um, I'll 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 come back with something else. But then the voice says, man, look at the way you're standing. 
What are you doing with your hands? You look funny right now. You look awkward. And then before long, you're all up in your head and you're trying to engage this person, but you can't be fully present because you're worried about how you look. Has that ever happened to anybody else? Right? And then you leave the conversation. I'm glad I'm not the only one, by the way. Then you leave the conversation and it's like, yeah, you weirdo. You're just strange. Everyone walks around thinking of you and they go, that guy's weird. That's the running commentary. Now that's like, that's like a really tame example of what you and I experience when it comes to a, a condemning heart. Maybe let's drop down a little bit. Let's get a little bit more serious on what a condemning heart actually looks like and what it feels like. Uh, you came in this morning and you're trying to sing the songs. You're trying to engage, um, but, but your heart is cold. You look around, other people are raising their hands. It's like, man, I, I'm, I'm just not feeling it today. For, for whatever reason, my heart is, is cold, and these other people seem to really be enjoying this, and I want to enjoy this, but I can't. I feel far from God today. And then the voice comes, yeah, that's because you haven't thought about God all week. And now it's Sunday. You haven't read your Bible. You haven't prayed. You haven't pursued God at all, and it's Sunday. Shame on you. You are failing at being a Christian. So of course you can't enjoy this moment. Don't raise your hands. That would be fake. It's a condemning heart. Or maybe you hear the voice when you walk into a room with other people. And here's what the voice says. It says, man, just look at the mess in your life. Just look at the mess in your life. If the people in this room knew the mess in your life, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. They would just be appalled at what's really going on behind closed doors. Or maybe you're driving down the street. For me, this happens when I go to certain parts of Oklahoma, certain parts of, of different cities that I grew up in, and I see places where I did some really shameful things. And you're driving down the street, maybe you pass something, and it makes you think of a really shameful thing that you've done. Some sexual act or something that you did that you just feel embarrassed about or something that was just really dark and disgusting and gross, and all of a sudden the voice enters in, man, that's who you really are. And that's going to haunt you the rest of your life. You'll never live that down. Or maybe this uh, happens to you when you just think about what other people have done to you. And the voice comes on and it says, the reason why you've been so abused is because there's something wrong with you. You're defective. You're the common problem here. There's something wrong with you. And it just brings waves and waves of condemnation. Most Christians that I know, and this is after like 10 years of doing ministry in Oklahoma, most Christians that I know live with a low-grade buzz of condemnation every day of their lives. It's a low-grade buzz. You will never measure up. God doesn't really love you. There's something wrong with you. You're not really a Christian. You're just pretending. Like, you name it. You fill in the blank. There's something profoundly wrong. God doesn't really want anything to do with you. He might eventually learn to put up with you, but he's never going to love you. It's a low-grade level of condemnation. Uh, how often does this happen? How often does this happen? Well, look at, the end of, uh, look at the beginning of verse 20 in John chapter 3. John says, for whenever our heart condemns us, in other words, like this is not an infrequent random experience that you might have. This is whenever your heart condemns you, like it's gonna happen, it's a frequent thing. Let me say it like this. This is normal Christianity. So if you're in the room and you go, man, I live with the low-grade level of, of condemnation, this buzz in the background of my soul that says God doesn't love me and he doesn't want anything to do with me and there's something profoundly wrong with me. I, I live with that. Can I just tell you, you're not a freak but welcome to Christianity. This is what it looks like sometimes. Whenever your heart 
condemns us. This is a fairly normal Christian experience. So that's the first thing John wants you to see. He wants you to see the reality of a condemning heart. Some of you in the room, that in itself is good news that you aren't alone. That when you walk into a room and you hear that voice, that other people are also hearing that same condemning voice. And it's coming from your heart. So that's the first thing, the reality of a condemning heart. Here, here's the second thing I want you to see. Why? Why do our hearts condemn us? Have you ever wondered that? We know that it happens. It's a constant experience that we have, but why do our hearts condemn us? Well, I want you to notice where John says that we specifically need reassurance. Where is it? Where's the location that you and I need assurance? Well, look again at 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts where? Before him, before God. Here's what John says. John says that um, if you're a Christian and you struggle with a condemning heart, it's because you've entered into the very presence of God and you're standing before him. That's why you're experiencing a condemning heart. You're in the presence of God. Now, ch let me just pause there. Chances are some of you don't see the connection between standing in the presence of God and then experiencing a condemning heart. Why are those two things related? Well, I think the reason we don't see the connection is because in the West, when we think of the presence of God, especially in the Midwest, when we think of the presence of God, we kind of get this like Hallmark greeting card, beams of light, folded hands, uh, pastels. That's the image that comes to mind. In fact, I googled presence of God, and let me just show you some images that came up. This is one of them, right? Presence of God, that's how we think of it, right? I'm standing in a wheat field with my arms raised. I'm in the presence of God. Or this, just, I mean, how could that not be the presence of God right there? That's what we think of when we think of the presence of God. And so when you think of this, you're like, if I'm in the presence of God, I'm going to experience peace and tranquility and comfort, and that's what I'm going to be experiencing. But here's what's so bizarre, that when the Bible talks about the presence of God, and specifically people being in the presence of God, it says something very, very different. Now, let me be clear. Uh, there is peace and comfort in the presence of God. But it's not like you might think. In fact, when people in the Bible uh, entered into or were brought into the presence of this almighty, powerful God, rather than experiencing an incredible tranquility, what they often experienced was absolute terror and fear, and they would fall down on their faces, and they'd be completely undone. Let me give you just a couple examples. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, this is a, a, a godly man. He's standing in the presence of God and he falls down on his face and in terror he cries out this, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's totally undone. Uh, Peter, when he meets Jesus for the first time, and Jesus does this really powerful miracle, Peter falls down to his knees, and look at what he says to Jesus. When Simon Peter saw it, Luke 5, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Instead of being overwhelmed by the compassion and filled with tranquility, it was, get away from me, I'm, I'm broken. And then at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, the author of this book, John, he gets a, a glimpse of the presence of God. And in chapter 117, he falls down 
on his, on his face, and it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So here's the common thing that happens to people that enter into the presence of God or are standing before God, is rather than being assured of all the things in their heart being okay, they're actually condemned and they're undone and they're overwhelmed and they fall to the ground and they say, I'm broken and I'm sinful, get away from me, depart from me. There's something defective with me. This is what happens when you see God. Let me, let me put it like this. Like, uh, have you ever been in a room that's dark and you go, yeah, this room's pretty clean. And then like the light slowly starts to kick on. You're like, oh, it's a little more dirty than I thought it was. And then the light gets brighter. You're like, this room is filthy, right? And then the, the light's fully on in the room. You're like, I can't even be in there. I gotta get out of this room, right? Th- that is what happens to someone as they get closer and closer and closer to God. Rather than going, man, I'm, I, I feel better. I feel like I'm growing. They go, there's, there's more stuff in here that I didn't know about. There's more brokenness. There's more addiction. It's, it's not just this big stuff. Like, there's all this stuff in here, and it's dirty, and it's gross, and often our hearts condemn us because we're in the presence of God. So this is actually a little bit of a comfort, even though it's a painful comfort, that if you are in the room and you're saying, man, my heart is condemning me, One of the reasons why is that you are in the presence of God and John is saying, yet God has made himself known to you. This light, this holy being has made himself known to you and rather than just ignoring what's in your soul, he's helping you identify what's really going on. He's showing you the brokenness inside of your soul. So it's a little bit of a comfort, isn't it? In fact, let me say it like this. If you never feel devastated by your sin, you should be freaked out. If you never feel overwhelmed by the weight of what's really going on, you're the one that should be nervous. If you never feel like you're standing in the presence of God and you're totally undone, then there's something actually terrifyingly wrong because everyone that stands in the presence of God is just overwhelmed and their heart begins to condemn them like crazy. Now, this is, um, this is not something that Jesus wants you to live in for the rest of your life. He doesn't want you to uh, live in a condemning heart for the rest of your life. He doesn't want you to walk around with your head down and your shoulders curled inward and being overwhelmed at the shame of your sin. That's not actually what he wants to do. In fact, the invitation is Jesus wants, you, wants to set you free from condemnation. He wants to move you from a condemning heart to a heart that experiences the reassuring love of Jesus. And every one of these instances that I just men- mentioned, Isaiah, Peter, John, all of them, they're at first undone and overwhelmed, falling to the ground. And then right after that, immediately after that, Jesus comes along and he comforts them and reminds them, I love you and I've forgiven you and you're mine. How do we get there, right? How do we move from having a condemning heart to silencing that condemnation and, it's, and experiencing the love of God? That's the third thing I want you to see, how to silence your condemning heart, Look at what John says. He's going to tell us. Chapter 3, 19, he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, look at this, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. When your heart condemns you, John wants you to remember two things. Here's the first thing. That recognize He wants you to recognize that God is greater than your heart. Now, what does that mean, that God is greater than your heart? Uh, Here's the best way I know how to explain it. I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom for just a second and that you are the defendant. So you're sitting there on trial. You are the defendant. And your heart 
is the prosecution. I want you to think about all the laundry list of things that you've done in your life, all the things that have brought you shame, all the things that have brought you guilt. I want you to, in this moment, think about that with me. I want you to think about all the things that you haven't done that you should have done, the ways you should have loved your spouse, the ways you should have been a better parent, the ways you should have kept yourself sexually pure, the ways that you should have fill in the blank. All the things that you have done and all the things that you haven't done. And here you are on trial, you're sitting there, and the prosecution is prosecuting you like crazy. Your heart lays out a laundry list of all the things that are shameful and gross and sinful and wrong. And they're looking at you and they're accusing you and accusing you and accusing you. Now here's the scary thing. The prosecution is actually right. You really have done these things. This really is who you are. This really is what you failed to do. So the prosecution is, is right. But here's the good news. Can, uh, can the prosecution sentence or condemn someone? No. Who, who has the power to sentence or condemn? Only the judge. So here's the other party in this scenario. You're sitting there and you're on trial and you're the defendant, the prosecution is there, and they're laying out all the crimes and all the sin and all the shame and all the guilt, but there's someone else there that's greater who has the power to sentence and condemn, and that's the judge. This is God. And what does God say to you? Does he say, you know what, you're right, all these things are true, so depart from me, I want nothing to do with you. No, instead, here's what God does. He says, yeah, prosecution, you're actually right, but there's one thing that you're forgetting, and that's that Jesus has died in their place for their sin. My own son took on their brokenness and their shame. He died and he rose again, so they are no longer guilty for the crimes that they have committed. They can no longer be held accountable. In fact, here's what the judge says to you, and this is John's point. God is greater than your heart, and this is what God the judge says to you. Listen to this, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn your heart isn't great enough to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is what John is saying. He's saying whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Your heart cannot have the last word. Your heart has no ability to sentence you. It can't condemn you. Even though it accuses you, it can't actually do anything because God the judge has already pronounced over your life, you are mine. There's no more condemnation because you're in me. You're trusting in me. There's no more condemnation for you. God is greater than your heart. Is that good news to anybody in the room? Yeah, I can't tell because you're like, you know, stoically sitting there as this amazing news is coming to you, right? God's greater than your heart. That's one of the things that you do when your heart condemns you. Here's the second thing we do. We recognize that God knows everything. Maybe this is why you can't celebrate what I just said. Because there's something that happens with all of us that you go, yeah, 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 I, I know that that's true, but you still don't know what I've done. There's some things that if people really knew, if it really came out, then 
I, I couldn't, that couldn't be true of me. I couldn't be loved the way that you're describing. I couldn't hear God say that over me. There's just some stuff that you don't know. Now, that might be true, but what John is saying is that God knows everything. He knows everything. Fully, completely, the baggage in your soul, the thing that you did when you were younger, that if you could take back any day in your life, that's the thing you would take back. He knows. The secret that you haven't told anybody, he knows. The shame that eats you alive in the middle of the night, he knows. He knows everything, and with that knowledge, he still made the decision to come and lay his life down for you in love. Uh, there's this uh, story back in the days of the, uh, the old Russian czars uh, that I thought was really beautiful and helpful. One of the czars had a friend who was a nobleman, and the nobleman uh, was on his deathbed. He was dying and had a little boy. And he said to the czar, he said, when I die, please would you adopt my son. Uh, his mom has also died. When I die, he will be left all alone. He won't have anybody to care for him. Will you please, please consider adopting my son? Sure enough, the nobleman died, and then the czar did. He adopted this little boy to be his own son. He gave him access to his, his, his palace, basically. He gave him access to all of his stuff and took him in to be his own. Everything that the czar had, in effect, belonged to this little boy. And then as the little boy grew up, he didn't grow up to be a very moral person. In fact, he, was, he had no self-control, and he was a really, really bad guy, actually. He joined eventually the, the Russian military, the Russian army, and uh, got a very bad gambling addiction. It was out of control. Um, so to fuel his gambling addiction, his job in the military uh, was actually the bookkeeper. So he oversaw the books and interacted with the money. He was essentially, you know, handling the money and dealing with the books. So uh, to maintain his gambling addiction, he began to embezzle money from the army and then change the books out to cover his track so that he can keep up his addiction. This went on for some time, and then eventually he realized that uh, he wasn't going to be able to cover his tracks anymore. In fact, he probably only had about one or two days more before his lie caught up, and he would be exposed for who he was, and he was just overwhelmed with shame and guilt over what he'd done, and so he went into his tent late at night. He had the books laying out on, on the desk. He was kind of sitting over his books, and he put a revolver there. He was going to take his own life, because he knew in a day or two, this is going to come out, and I'll be, I'll be disgraced. So he began to drink to get the nerve up to kill himself. He began to drink and drink and drink, but like what happens to people that drink and drink and drink and drink, he passed out. He passed out, so now he's on the ground, he's not able to kill himself. Uh, well, one of the things that the czars used to do is the czar would dress up like an enlisted man, and he, enlisted man, and he would just walk around to see what real life was like for his soldiers, to get a grid for how they thought he was doing, kind of just check in on things. So the czar, on this particular night, was dressed up like an enlisted man, and he walks into the tent where his adopted son is. He sees him passed out on the floor, he sees the, the books open, he sees the revolver, and he quickly starts to realize what was going on. He looks at the books and he realizes how deep his adopted son was into embezzling money and all the crimes that he'd committed. So the czar, he wrote a quick note and he sealed it with the czar seal, the czar emblem, and he slid it inside of the book by the pistol and he walked out. The next morning, this, this man, this young man, he woke up and he saw the letter sitting there and here's, what, here's all the letter said. Said, I, the czar, will make good the debts in this book. 
And at that moment, the young man realized, this man, he knew everything about me. He knew, he knew all this stuff, and yet he still loves me. And he was changed. Guys, this is what God has done. God has dressed up as one of us. <laughs> he's entered into our world, and, and he's come and he's seen the books. He's seen all the ways that your heart condemns you. It's laying out before him. He's looked at all of it, and he's written us a note. Hey, I, I know what you've done. I'm going to make good the debts. And he does by dying on a cross in our place and rising again. He still loves us. And it's that type of love that changes us. And this is what John is trying to say. Hey, whenever your heart condemns you, a fairly regular experience, there's just two things you got to do. God is greater than your heart. Your heart cannot condemn you. God is the only one who condemn you. And he doesn't. And he knows everything. He knows all the stuff. There's no loophole. There's no, yeah, but you can't do that with God. He knows everything, and he still loves you and has given himself for you so that you could be brought into his family. This is what Christianity is. If you're wondering, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, are, are we gathering together because we've kept the rules really great this week and now we want to celebrate? No. Are we gathering together because we're just these uh, weak people that totally are in need of God. Yes, we are. Without him, we can't do anything. Like, the only reason why we're happy is because there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of baggage and a lot of things that I really wanted to be forgiven of, and I could have never earned or deserved that level of forgiveness. But God, in his mercy, he forgave me anyway. By his grace, I get to be forgiven, given a new identity, brought into his family. My whole destiny changed forever, and I didn't contribute anything to that except for brokenness and shame and sin. That's why we are happy. Like this profound level of happy that even when life is chaotic, it maintains us. This is why we sing songs like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name, your name, that's graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, listen, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is what makes a Christian a Christian. Jesus died and rose again. And we just flock to him and look to him and trust in him and hope in him. And when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And he still loves us.